Our words are giant when they do us an injury and dwarves when they do us a service. Wilkie Collins This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. Hi guys! Today I'm back with the second episode of my two-part series on Wilkie Collins. This episode is titled Wilkie's Writing, and in it I'm going to talk a little bit about Wilkie's writing process and then read you and comment on a piece of his prose writing. So process. How did Wilkie write? How did he get inspired? What do we know about that anyway? Well, a big part of his writing process is influenced by the mode of publication that was most common in the day. And so in the last episode, I mentioned that Wilkie published 23, or he wrote 23 novels in his lifetime. Of those 23, 19 were published serially or in pieces over time in a variety of kinds of periodicals. So this would have included newspapers, magazines, fancier literary journals, and these would have been published either weekly or monthly. And so chunks of these novels would have come out, kind of like today's TV shows, once a week or once a month, depending on the publication schedule of whatever specific publication they were coming out in. This process is called serialization, and these kinds of novels are called a bunch of different things. So they might be called part-issue novels, they might be called newspaper novels, or they might be called serial novels. And this form of publication was so important in the Victorian period that I'm actually going to talk about it at more length in a mini-cast that will follow this episode. But suffice it to say, this mode of publication really influenced the way that Wilkie's writing process developed during his lifetime. So pretty early in his career, when his friendship with Dickens solidifies, Dickens encourages Wilkie to take up writing serially, of course, but in a way that Dickens himself found really effective, which is that he didn't write the whole novel first, and then let the newspaper or magazine break it up and publish it bit by bit. Instead, he wrote bit by bit as the publication deadlines loomed and, and passed. So he would write chapters one through three, for example, and then pass it on to the magazine, and then write chapters four through five, and then pass it on to the magazine, and each piece would be published as he wrote. Dickens really loved this style because it let him take account of readers' comments and reactions to things and, and make changes based on those, but I think that Wilkie Collins was a little bit more anxious about this way of writing, at least as first. He was kind of peer pressured into it, but he eventually got used to it, and it seems that he worked that way for most of his life. So other than writing mainly for initial publication in newspapers and magazines and writing bit by bit of a novel instead of writing the whole thing and then publishing it, what what do we know about Wilkie's writing process? So there are a couple of sources published in newspapers. One's an interview, and one is an article that Wilkie wrote in the form of a letter, although it was never actually a letter. 
that tell us a little bit, at least, about how he wrote. How much are these to be trusted? We don't know. Authors really often elaborate, exaggerate on their writing processes. They make them sound more romantic and exotic than they really are. And there are a number of documented cases where Wilkie Collins does this specifically in regard to the woman in white. In fact, these are a couple of them. Um, so we know little bits and pieces of these are probably exaggerated for artistic effect, but some of the details can tell us what his day-to-day -day writing method looked like. So the first source I'm looking at today is a fictional letter called How I Write My Books, related in a letter to a friend. And I'm just going to read that in full and comment on it as I go. My dear miss, you ask me, madame, to tell you how I write my books, and you express an opinion that other persons besides yourself may be interested in the result if I comply with your request. I am not at all sure that I have the honor of agreeing with you. My own impression is that the public cares little how books are written. If the books are easy to get, and if they prove to be interesting, the general reader asks for nothing more. You assert upon this that there is but one way of deciding which is the sound opinion, yours or mine, and that way is to try the experiment. Your will is law. Let the experiment be tried. All my novels are produced by the same literary method. If we take one book as an example, I shall perhaps be able to make myself more readily understood, and I shall certainly occupy less of your time. When I think of the claims of the toilet, the claims of the shops, the claims of conversation, the claims of horse exercise, and the claims of chat, to say nothing of hundreds of smaller occupations, my respect for the value of your time is part of my respect for yourself. So just a little aside here, toilet, spelled T-O-I-L-E-T-T-E, is just sort of um, hygiene, dressing, makeup, etc., like all rolled into one. Um, that list that Wilkie provides there is a list of the things a genteel lady might be expected to do in a day. Anyway, carrying on. Which book shall we choose as a specimen? Shall it be the most popular book? Very well. I have now to tell you how I wrote The Woman in White. My first proceeding is to get my central idea, the pivot on which the story turns. The central idea of the woman in white is the idea of a conspiracy in private life, in which circumstances are so handled as to rob a woman of her identity by confounding her with another woman, sufficiently like her in personal appearance to answer the wicked purpose. The destruction of her identity represents a first division of the story. The recovery of her identity marks a second division. My central idea suggests some of my chief characters. A clever devil must conduct the conspiracy, male devil or female devil. The sort of wickedness wanted seems to be a man's wickedness, perhaps a foreign man. Count Fosco faintly shows himself to me before I know his name. Another aside. So at this time period, uh, Victorians are really suspicious about Italians, and that seeps through the woman in white and even into this article. Carrying on. I let him wait and begin to think about the two women. They must be both innocent and both interesting. Lady Glyde dawns on me as one of the innocent victims. I try to discover the other and fail. I try what a walk will do for me, and fail. I devote the evening to a new effort, and fail. Aside, so I follow a lot of writers on Twitter and other social media, and I am in fact a creative writer myself, and I'm 
innately, I'm uh, intimately familiar with all of these ways of trying to figure out story problems. I go on walks, I try to distract myself by doing other things and give my brain space to work. And Colin's saying that he's failing over and over again here is maybe not actually the case. It's just that it takes your brain time to figure stuff out. And so you often have to try a bunch of different methods to get, uh, to achieve the, the writing space and ideas that you need. Anyway, carrying on. Experience tells me to take no more trouble about it and leave that other woman to come of her own accord. The next morning, before I have been awake in my bed for more than ten minutes, my perverse brain set to work without consulting me. Poor Anne Catherick comes into the room and says, Try me. I have got my idea. I have got three of my characters. What is there to do now? My next proceeding is to begin building up the story. Here, my favorite three efforts must be encountered. First effort, to begin at the beginning. Second effort, to keep the story always advancing, without paying the smallest attention to the serial division in parts or to the book publications in volumes. Third effort, to decide on the end. All this is done, as my father used to paint his skies and his famous sea pieces, at one heat. As yet, I do not enter into the details. I merely set up my landmarks. In doing this, the main situations of the story present themselves, and at the same time I see my characters in all sorts of new aspects. These discoveries lead me nearer and nearer to finding the right end. The end being decided on, I go back again to the beginning, and look at it with a new eye, and fail to be satisfied with it. I have yielded to the worst temptation that besets a novelist, the temptation to begin with a striking incident, without counting the cost and the shape of explanations that must and will follow. These pests of fiction, to reader and writer alike, can only be eradicated in one way. I have already mentioned the way, to begin at the beginning. Aside, so one of the biggest problems creative writers face in the 21st century is actually beginning too early. And by modern standards, Victorian novelists do this all the time. So if you're a creative writer writing in the year 2017 or later, don't follow Wilkie Collins' advice. I mean, begin at the beginning, but as late as you possibly can is kind of the best advice that I have heard. Although writing advice is, like other kinds of advice, something to leave or take as, as suits you. Anyway, carrying on. In the case of the woman in white, I get back, as I vainly believe, to the true starting point of the story. I am now at liberty to set the new novel going, having, let me repeat, no more than an outline of story and characters before me, and leaving the details, in each case, to the spur of the moment. For a week, as well as I can remember, I work for the best part of every day, but not as happily as usual. An unpleasant sense of something wrong worries me. At the beginning of the second week, a disheartening discovery reveals itself. I have not found the right beginning of The Woman in White yet. The scene of my opening chapters is in Cumberland. Miss Fairley, afterwards Lady Glyde, Mr. Fairley, with his irritable nerves and his art treasures, Miss Halcombe, discovered suddenly, like Anne Catherick, are all awaiting the arrival of the young drawing-master, Walter Hartwright. No, this won't do. The person to be first introduced is Anne Catherick. She must be already a familiar figure to the reader when the reader accompanies me to Cumberland. This is what must be done, but I don't see how to do it. No new idea comes to me. I and my manuscript have quarreled, and don't speak to each other. One evening I happen to read of a lunatic who has escaped from an asylum, a paragraph of a few lines only, in a newspaper. 
Instantly, the idea comes to me of Walter Hartwright's midnight meeting with Anne Catherick, escaped from the asylum. The woman in white begins again, and nobody will ever be half as much interested in it now as I am. From that moment, I have done with my miseries. For the next six months, the pen goes on. It is work, hard work, but the harder the better, for this excellent reason. The work is its own exceeding great reward. So another aside here. Um, Collins mentions being inspired by an article in a newspaper, and this is actually something that defines the sensation fiction genre. It's kind of a timely genre in that Authors often claimed, at least, to pull their inspiration and their ideas directly from newspaper articles, and in that way, they claimed their work was more real than realism because it's based on real-life events, whereas realism just tries to imitate real life without necessarily being based on real life, if that makes sense. Moving on. As an example of the gradual manner in which I read the development of character, I may return for a moment to Fosco. The making him fat was an afterthought. His canaries and his white mice were found next, and the most valuable discovery of all, his admiration of Miss Halcombe, took its rise in a conviction that he would not be true to nature unless there was some weak point somewhere in his character. My last difficulty tried me after the story had been finished, and part of it had been set in proof for serial publication in all the year round. Aside, this was Dickens' second um, personal monthly magazine. Monthly? I think monthly. Let me double check on that. Nope, it was a weekly. So this is Dickens' second literary magazine uh, adventure. I can't think of the word. Um, mm, enterprise. Yes, this is Dickens' second literary magazine enterprise, the first being Household Words. The second one all the year round is a weekly, and Collins published stuff in both, but more increasingly more, or significantly more, in all the year round. So both The Woman in White and The Moonstone, which are now recognized as Collins' most famous, or they are now his most famous novels, uh, both were published in all the year round. Anyway, carrying on. Neither I nor any friend whom I consulted could find the right title. Aside, this is one thing that he seems to have embellished about. It seems like he had his title actually pretty much from the start. Carrying on. Literally, at the eleventh hour, I thought of the woman in white. In various quarters, this was declared to be a vile melodramatic title that would ruin the book. Among the very few friends who encouraged me, the first and foremost was Charles Dickens. Are you, too, disappointed? I said to him. Nothing of the sort, Wilkie. A better title there cannot be. You are kind enough to allude, in terms of approval, to my method of writing English, and to ask if my style comes to me easily. It comes easily, I hope, to you. Let a last word of confession tell you the rest. The day's writing having been finished, with such corrections of words and such rebalancing of sentences as occurred to me at the time, is subjected to a first revision on the next day, and is then handed to my copyist. The copyist's manuscript undergoes a second and a third revision, and is then sent to the printer. The proof passes through a fourth process of correction, and is sent back to have the new alterations embodied in a revise. When this reaches me, it is looked over once more before it goes back to press. When the serial publication of the novel is printed in book form, the book proofs undergo a sixth revision. Then, at last, my labor of correction has come to an end, and, I don't expect you to believe this, I am always sorry for it. You have enjoyed, madame, a privilege dear to ladies. You have had your own way. 
How I write my books, you now know as well as I can tell you. If you have been able to read to the end, show these lines, if you like, to any friends who care to look at them. In the meantime, I make my bow and my exit. Wilkie Collins. So this was printed in the Globe on November 26th of 1887. And it seems to be the only place where Collins directly wrote about his writing process, although he did give interviews about it. Um, the one that I found most interesting was called Mr. Wilkie Collins, and it was reprinted in the Sheffield Daily Telegraph from the world in 1879. But it says basically the same things. The exception is a description in the first bit, and I'm just going to read that to you as well to give you the most entire picture that I can provide of Wilkie Collins' writing process, and then we'll move on. Mr. Wilkie Collins a short man, with stooping shoulders and tiny hands and feet, with bright pleasant face looking out of a forest of light gray, almost white hair, greets us as we enter the big double drawing room in Gloucester Place. Mr. Wilkie Collins, when at work, sits at a massive writing table furnished with a small desk of the same design as that used by Charles Dickens. On the left is a japanned tin box, containing what Mr. Collins calls his stock-in-trade, plots and schemes for stories and dramas. For a plot, he is never at a loss, his great difficulty being in working it out to his satisfaction and in imparting the necessary literary finish to his composition. Hence, he is a rapid inventor and a slow producer, constantly revising his work until he has reached something approaching his ideal of a simple, natural style. A little to the left of the writing desk hangs a picture by Mr. Collins' father, the royal academician. Born in the purple atmosphere of art, the future novelist yet served a rough apprenticeship to storytelling. His first work had met with the meed of success awarded to filial biographies, and Antonina was ushered into the world with a considerable blare of trumpets. The late Mr. Bentley received the young novelist in the genial fashion, variously interpreted by successful and unsuccessful authors. He paid him handsomely for his work and produced Antonina, bound in virgin white and gold. But the public looked on Antonina with unfavorable eyes. So it goes on to trace some of his publishing history and says he doesn't really hit it big until the woman in white. But now you know where he wrote... I will add a picture of a japanned tin box to my show notes so you know kind of what what the box he would have kept his notes in looked like, roughly, anyway. But yeah, so he wrote at a big desk, it's covered in stuff, he had lots and lots of ideas, but it took him a while to work them out. And now it's time for a short break, and when we come back, I will read you a short story by Wilkie Collins. This is A Passage in the Life of Perugino Potts, published in Bentley's Miscellany in 1852. December 7th. I have just been one week in Rome, and have determined to keep a journal. Most men in my situation would proceed to execute such a resolution as this, by writing about the antiquities of the Eternal City. I shall do nothing of the sort. I shall write about a much more interesting subject, 
myself i may be wrong but my impression is that as an historical painter my biography will be written some of these days personal particulars of me will then be wanted i have great faith in the affectionate remembrance of any surviving friends i may leave behind me but on the whole i would rather provide these particulars myself my future biographer shall have p p sketched by p p i paint my own pictures why should i not paint my own character the commencement of a new journal offers the opportunity of doing this let me take it so an aside i wonder if this is i mean it seems like this is already sort of drawing on his father's life i should also note that this uh, diary style of writing or of for uh, of structuring his writing was something that wilkie collins had recourse to constantly throughout his career so the moonstone and the woman in white are based on a variety of newspaper articles or they're written as a, a kind of a compilation of evidence from personal statements to diaries to letters and the written record in this way is really really significant to collins okay carrying on i was destined to be an artist from my cradle my father was a great connoisseur and a great collector of pictures he christened me perugino after the name of his favorite master left me five hundred a year and told me with his last breath to be potts r a or to perish in the attempt aside i'll just remind you that the initials r a stand for royal academy royal academy of painters that is i determined to obey him but though i have hitherto signally failed in becoming an r a i have not the slightest intention even of so much as beginning to perish in compliance with the alternative suggested to me by my late lamented parent let the royal academy perish first i mean to exist as the express purpose of testifying against that miserably managed institution as long as i possibly can this may be thought strong language i will justify it by facts for seven years i have vainly sought a place in the annual exhibition for seven years has modest genius knocked the admission at the door of the royal academy and invariably the answer of the royal academicians has been not at home the first year i painted the smothering of the princes in the tower muscular murderers flabby children florid coloring quite in the rubens style turned out the second year i tried the devotional and severe the wise and foolish virgins ten angular women in impossible attitudes with a landscape background painted from the anti-perspective point of view turned out the third year i changed to the sentimental and pathetic it was stern's maria this time with her goat maria was crying the goat was crying stern himself in the background was crying with his face buried in a white cambric pocket handkerchief wet through with tears turned out so a little aside here there's a scene from a sentimental journey which was written by lawrence stern in the 18th century is really well known in the art world and a lot of people copied it i'll provide a link of some examples in the show notes but um collins is making fun of the sentimental style here which is interesting for someone who writes sensation novels because sensation is sort of like the twisted child of the sentimental novel so it's still trying in the same way as the earlier genre to emphasize emotion and to affect the reader to sort of prod the reader into feeling emotions but instead of high and worthy emotions sensation fiction is 
provoking shock and fear and more scandalous emotion, carrying on. The fourth year, I fell back on the domestic and familiar, a young housemaid in the kitchen, plighting her troth at midnight to a private in the grenadier guards, while the policeman of the neighborhood, a prey to jealousy and despair, flashed his bull's eye on them through the window from the area railing above, turned out. The fifth year, I gave up figures and drew my whole soul into landscape, classical landscape. I sent in a picture of three ruined columns, five pine trees, a lake, a temple, distant mountains, and a gorgeous sunset, the whole enlivened by a dance of nymphs in Roman togas in front of the ruined columns to be sold for the ludicrously small price of fifty guineas. Turned out, the sixth year, I resolved to turn mercenary in self-defense, and abandoning high art to take to portraiture. I produced a portrait of a lady— she was a professional model who sat at a shilling an hour, but no matter. I depicted her captivatingly clothed in white satin and grinning serenely. In the background appeared a red curtain, gorgeously bound books on a round table, and thunderstorm clouds. Turned out. So another aside here, there was some social concern that models for painters were actually just prostitutes. So his defensiveness about that here, that he's paying the model to sit, is possibly a way to prevent criticism that he's working with prostitutes, but also kind of does a double duty in suggesting actually that exact thing because both kinds of ladies would be paid for their services. So he's in a double bind here, probably intentionally. The seventh year, I humbly resigned myself to circumstances and sank at once to still life, represented in the smallest possible scale. A modest canvas, six inches long by four inches broad, containing striking likenesses of a pot of porter, a pipe, and a plate of bread and cheese, intentionally entitled The Laborer's Best Friends, was my last modest offering, and this, even this, the poor artist's one little ewe lamb of a picture was turned out. The eighth year was the year when I started in disgust to seek nobler fields for pictorial ambition in the regions of Italian art. The eighth year has brought me to Rome. Here I am. I, Perugino Potts, vowed to grapple with Raphael and Michelangelo on their own ground. Grand idea. Personally, when I have my high-heeled boots on, I stand five feet three inches high. Let me at once acknowledge, for I have no concealments from posterity, that I am outwardly what is termed a little man. I have nothing great about me but my mustachios and my intellect. I am of the light-complexioned order of handsome fellows, and have hitherto discovered nothing that I can conceitiously blame in my temper and general disposition. The fire of an artistic ambition that burns within me shoots upward with a lambent glow. In a word, I am a good-humored man of genius. This is much to say, but I could add yet more, were I not unhappily writing with an Italian pen on Italian paper. The pen splutters inveterately. The paper absorbs my watery ink like a blotting book. Human patience can stand it no longer. I give up for the day in despair. Eighth. Intended to proceed with my interesting autobiographical particulars, but was suddenly stopped at the very outset of a, by an idea for a new picture. Subject, the primitive father Polycarp, writing his epistles, to be treated in the sublime style of Michelangelo's prophets on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Polycarp to be several sizes larger than life, and well-developed about the beard and muscles. Ninth, made inquiries for a good model and found the very man I wanted. When I entered his humble abode, he was preparing his breakfasts. 
the meal was characterized by a primitive simplicity and a strong smell he first pulled out his stiletto knife and cut off a large crust of bread the outside of this crust he rubbed with garlic till it shone like walnut wood table in an english farmhouse the inside he saturated with oil and vinegar by the time he had done that the whole crust looked like a cold poultice in a polished calf leather saucer he ate this remarkable compound with voracious enjoyment while i looked at him i found him a rather difficult man to estimate in a physiognomical point of view nothing was to be seen of his face but two goggle eyes and a hook nose peering out of a forest of hair such hair just the iron-gray sort of thing i wanted such a beard the most devotional i ever saw i engaged him on the spot and jocosely christened him polycarp the second in allusion to the character he was to represent on my canvas tenth polycarp the second came to sit he was polite talkative and apparently somewhat infested by fleas i had an explanation with him on the last mentioned of his personal characteristics he asserted consolingly that the fleas were not likely to leave him to go to me they patriotically preferred italian to english pasturage trusting he was right i changed the subject and asked about his history his answer tended to show that he had been ill-used and misunderstood by everybody from his cradle his father his mother his relations the priests the police the high populace and the low populace throughout every degree they had all maltreated persecuted falsely accused and unrelentingly pursued polycarp the second he attributed this miserable state of things partly to the invincible piety and honesty of his character which of course exposed him to the malice of the world and partly to his strong and disinterested attachment to the english nation which lowered him in the eyes of his prejudiced countrymen he wept as he said this his beard became a disconsolate beard with the tears that trickled down it excellent-hearted polycarp i sympathize with him already in spite of the fleas eleventh another sitting from my worthy model the colossal figure is by this time so rapid a workman am i entirely sketched in my physical exertions are tremendous my canvas is fourteen feet high and polycarp reaches from top to bottom i can only pursue my labor by incessantly getting up and down a pair of steps by condemning myself heroically to a sort of pictorial treadmill already however i have tasted the compensating sweets of triumph my model is in raptures with my design he was so profoundly affected that he cried over it just as he cried over his own history what taste these italians naturally possess what impressibility what untaught sympathies with genius how delightfully different their disposition from the matter-of-fact english character how stolid is a british royal academician compared to polycarp the second twelfth model again crying again previous history again raptures again i wish you would not smell quite so strong of garlic at present he repels my nose as powerfully as he attracts my heart sent him on an errand to buy me lamp black and flake white i mean to lay it on rather thick when i come to polycarp's beard gave him the money to pay for the paint about fourpence english the honest creature showed himself worthy of my confidence by bringing me back one halfpenny of change with the colors poor polycarp poor persecuted lost sheep the malicious world has singed the wool off your innocent back be it mine to see it grow again under the british artist's fostering care thirteenth fourteenth fifteenth sixteenth 
too much occupied to make regular entries in my journal. I must have been up and down several miles of steps during my four days' labor on my fourteen feet of canvas. The quantity of paint I am obliged to use is so enormous that it quite overpowers all polycarp's garlic, and will, I imagine, in process of time poison all polycarp's fleas. I feel fatigued, especially in the calves of my legs, but with such a design as I am producing to cheer me on, and with such a model as I have got to appreciate my genius and run my errands, fatigue itself becomes an enjoyment. Physically as well as intellectually, I feel the Samson of high art. 17. Horror, humiliation, disenchantment, despair. Polycarp II is off with my watch, chain, and purse containing Roman money to the amount of five pounds English. I feel the most forlorn, deluded, miserable ass under the canopy of heaven. I have been the dupe of a hypocritical, whimpering scoundrel. The scent of his garlic still floats aggravatingly on the atmosphere of my studio, outraging my nose and my feelings both together. But I can write no more on this disastrous day. I must either go mad or go to dinner immediately. Let me embrace the latter alternative while it is still within my power. Away! Away to forget in the national Roman dish of kid's flesh and pistachio nuts. 18th. The national Roman dish has disagreed with me. I sit bilious before my fourteen canvas feet of thickly painted but still unfinished polycarp. This is an opportunity for relating in a proper spirit of lamentation the history of my discomfiture. It happened thus. Powerfully as my legs are made, they gave way under me on the morning of the 17th. After I had been three hours engaged in incessantly getting up the steps to put hairs on Polycarp's beard, and incessantly getting down again to go to the other end of the room and look at the effect of them, I told my perfidious model that he might take a rest, and set him the example by taking a rest myself. Overpowered by weariness and the pressure of ideas, I fell asleep, unaccountably and barbarously fell asleep in my chair, before my own picture. The toil-worn British artist innocently reposed, and the whimpering Italian scoundrel took advantage of his slumbers. The bearded villain must have coolly taken my chain off my neck, my watch out of my waistcoat, my purse out of my pocket, while I was asleep. When I awoke it was dusk. I yawned loudly, no notice taken of it. I called out more loudly, no answer. I struck a light, no chain, no watch, no purse, no polycarp. After a moment of bewilderment and horror, I rushed to the traitor's dwelling. The people of the house knew nothing about him, except that he was not home. I proclaimed my wrongs furiously to the rest of the lodgers. Another bearded man among them threatened me with assassination if I did not immediately hold my tongue. I held it. The bearded man's mother recommended me to go home, ominously swinging a saucepan full of dirty water towards me, while she spoke. I took her advice. When I am in a den of thieves, I do not find the courageous part of my character quite so fully developed as I could wish. Nineteenth. Sought redress and restitution from the police. They appeared to consider my application first as a joke, and then as an insult. Could they not catch Polycarp the second? I asked. Yes, they might possibly catch him in the process of time. Then why not set about his capture at once? In the sacred name of justice, why not? Because it was no use, he must have sold the watch and chain and spent the money by this time. Besides, suppose him caught, it would be inconvenient to punish him, for the prisons were all full. There was no room for him anywhere. 
I was an Englishman, therefore rich, and therefore able to put up with my loss. Surely I had better go away, and not make a fuss about the business in bad Italian. Shade of Brutus, can this be Roman justice? Twentieth. A visit from a brother artist, a German who chirps his national songs all day, paints in the Severs style, and lives on an income of forty pounds a year. This esteemed fellow laborer gave me some advice on hearing of my disaster. He assured me that I should get no assistance from the police without bribing them handsomely to do their work. Supposing they really took decisive steps after that, it was more than probable that Polycarp or some of his friends would put me out of their way in the night by sticking an inch or two of stiletto into my ribs. I had better not move in the matter if I valued either my pocket or my life. This, said the German student, lighting his pipe, this, O Anglo-Saxon brother, is not thy fatherland. At Rome, the mind and body comforting virtues they practice not. They grant no justice, and they quaff no beer. 21st. After mature consideration, arrived at the conclusion that I had better leave Rome. To go on with my picture after what has happened is impossible. The train of thought in which it originated is broken up forever. Moreover, envious fellow students are already beginning to make a joke of my disaster, and for aught I know to the contrary, Polycarp II may be lying in wait for my life every night at the corner of the street. Pursued by ridicule and threatened by assassination, no course is left me but dignified retreat. Rome, farewell. Romans, one more master spirit that dwelt among ye has now been outraged and proscribed. Coriolanus, Potts. 22nd. Early in the morning, took my canvas off the stretcher, rolled it up, and deposited it in the studio of my friend, the German artist. He promises to complete my design, as soon as he can afford paint enough to cover so colossal a canvas. I wrung his hand in silence, and left him my lamp black as a stock-in-trade of colors to begin with. Half an hour afterwards I was on the road to Florence, hastening to seek intellectual consolation at the feet of the Venus de Medici. 24th arrived at the tuscan capital in the late evening rain hail snow wind rising to a hurricane people who praise the climate of italy must be the paid agents of italian innkeepers i have never suffered such cold as this in england in my life twenty fifth called on an italian gentleman to whom i had a letter of introduction for the purpose of inquiring about lodgings told him i only wanted a bedroom and a studio he informed me that I could get both, a studio fifty feet long if I liked it, at the palace of the Marchesa. Lodgings at a palace, cried I. Yes, and very cheap, too, answered my new friend. Cheap? Can a marchioness drive bargains? Readily. The marchioness has not fifty pounds of your money for her whole yearly income. Has she any children? One unmarried daughter, the Marchesina. What's that? A diminutive term of endearment, it means the little marchioness, my dear sir, in your language. This last reply decided me. Serene visions re marchionessa pots swam benignant before my eyes. In an evil hour, and little thinking into what fatal embarrassments I was plunging myself, I asked for the address of the palace, and determined to lodge with the marchioness. Christmas Day, and no roast beef or plum pudding. I wish I was back in England, in spite of my brilliant prospects with the Italian aristocracy. 26th. Went to my noble landladies, having dreamt all night of Polycarp II. Is this a warning that I am to see that miscreant again? Found the palace situated in a back street. 
an enormous building in a very deficient state of repair. The flagstones of the courtyard grass-grown, the fountain in the middle throwing up no water and entirely surrounded by weeds and puddles, the staircase rugged with hard dirt. But for thinking of the Marchionissa, I should have run away at my first external view of my future lodgings. Saw the Marchesa. Where does all the flesh of all the old women in Italy go to? What substance absorbs? What grave receives it? Why is there no such thing as a fat lady of sixty in the whole peninsula? Oh, what a thoroughly Italian old woman was this Marchesa. She was little, crooked, fleshless. Her yellow skin had shriveled up tight over her bones. Her nose looked preternaturally aquiline, without an atom of cheek to relieve it. Her hair was white. Her eyes were blazing black, and to crown all, she was as stealthily civil as any watering-place landlady in England that I ever met with. She must have exercised some hideous fascination over me, for I fell into her toils and chartered a bedroom and studio before I had been in her presence ten minutes. The bedroom was comparatively small for a palace, only about thirty feet long by twenty broad. The studio was a vasty mausoleum of a drawing-room, sixty feet by forty of marble floor without a fireplace or a single article of furniture on any part of it do not look comfortable in the month of february when the snow is falling out of doors i shall have to sit and paint in a sentry box twenty seventh removed to my dungeon i can call it nothing else i have just seen the marchionissa and i feel faint and giddy after the sight the little marchioness to use my friend's translation of her name stands five feet eleven in her slippers her hair and eyes are as black as ink, her arm is as thick as my leg, her complexion is sallow, she is as fleshly a subject as I ever remember to have met with. I know where all the old woman's fat has gone now. It has gone to the Marchionissa. My first intuitive resolve on being introduced to this magnificent aristocrat was as follows. I must make friends with you, madame, for I see that you can thrash me. 28th. The domestic life of the two noble ladies exhibits some peculiarities. I have observed that neither of them appears to possess such a thing as a gown. They are both swaddled in quantities of shapeless, dark-colored robes, wrapped about them in a very mysterious manner. They appear to live exclusively on salad. They make salads not only of every kind of vegetable, but of bread, nuts, and sponge cakes. If the Marchionissa by any accident ever set herself on fire, I feel assured that she would blaze like a beacon from the quantity of oil she imbibes. Both the ladies keep me company in my studio, because I have got a chafing dish of charcoal in it to preserve me from freezing, and they like to be economical in point of fire. But besides my fire, they have their own, which they carry in their laps, an earthenware pipkin apiece, with an arched handle and a small provision of burning charcoal in it, is the extraordinary portable fire that they hold on their knees all day long. I suspect the Marchionissa of having a second pipkin full of live charcoals under her robes, for the purpose of warming her feet and so forth, but of this I am not yet certain. Twenty-ninth. The mighty Marchionissa has proposed a subject to me to paint, a life-sized portrait of herself in the character of a sibyl. Ah, merciful heaven! I must have another huge canvas for this. It will be another polycarp in female form. More getting up and down steps, more gallons of black paint. But I must submit. The Marchionissa has been hitherto very kind, sometimes even alarmingly affectionate. Nevertheless, if I oppose or neglect her, I feel perfectly certain that she is capable of knocking me down. 
Why? Why did I ever come to Italy? January 1st. I mark this day's entry with red ink. The new year has begun for me with one of the most outstanding adventures that ever happened to anybody, Baron Munchausen included. Let me note it down in these pages. I have just begun this morning to make a sketch for the future Sybil picture, when the Sybil herself burst into my studio in a great hurry. She had her bonnet on and was dressed for the first time since I had seen her in something which really looked like a petticoat. "'Industrious little man,' said the Marchionissa, with an air of jocular authority, "'put on your hat and come out with me.' Of course I obeyed directly. We were going to the nunnery church of Santa so-and-so. I'm afraid of being prosecuted for libel if I write the real name. To see the live object of the last new miracle, which had set all Florence in an uproar of astonishment and admiration— this object was a poor man who had been miraculously restored from blindness by praying to a certain statue of the Madonna. He had only pursued his devotions for two days when he was cured in an instant, like the man with the toothache, on the outside cover of a certain quack medicine bottle that I remember in England. Besides gaining his sight, he had gained a great deal of money, subscribed for him by the devout rich. He was exhibited every day in the church, and it was the great sight of Florence to go and see him. Well, we got to the church. Such a scene inside. Crowds of people, soldiers in full uniform to keep order, the organ thundering sublimely, the choir singing hosannas, clouds of incense floating through the church, devotees, some kneeling, some prostrate on their faces, wherever they could find room, all the magnificence of the magnificent Roman Catholic worship was displayed before us in its grandest festival garb. My companion was right. This was a sight worth seeing indeed. The Marchionissa being a person of some weight, both in respect of physical formation and social standing, made her way victoriously through the crowd, dragging me after her in triumph. At the inner extremity of the church we saw the wonder-working statue of the Madonna, raised on high and profusely decorated with the jewels presented to it by the faithful. To get a view of the man on whom the miracle had been wrought was, however, by no means easy. He was closely surrounded by a circle of gazers five deep. Ere long, however, the indomitable Marchionissa contrived to force her way and mine through every obstacle. We reached the front row. I looked eagerly under a tall man's elbow and saw, Portentous powers of scoundrelism and hypocrisy! It was, yes, there was no mistaking him. It was Polycarp the Second. I never really knew what it was to doubt my own eyes before, and yet there was no doubt here. There, kneeling beneath the statue of the Madonna, in an elegant pose of adoration, was my wide-awake miscreant of a model, changed to the hero of the most fashionable miracle of the day. The tears were trickling over his villainous beard, exactly as they trickled in my studio. I just detected the smell of garlic faintly predominant over the smell of incense, as I used to detect it at Rome. My sham model had turned sham blind man to all Florence, sham a miracle subject to a convent of illustrious nuns. The fellow had reached the sublime acme of rascality at a single stride. The shock of my first recognition of him deprived me of my presence of mind. I forgot where I was, I forgot all the people present, and unconsciously uttered aloud our national English ejaculation of astonishment. Hello? The spectators in my neighborhood all turned round upon me immediately. 
a priest among the number beckoned to a soldier standing near and said remove the british heretic this was rather too violent a proceeding to be patiently borne i was determined to serve the cause of truth and avenge myself on polycarp the second at the same time sir i said to the priest before i am taken away i should like to speak in private to the lady abbess of this convent remove the heretic reiterated the furious bigot remove the heretic echoed the indignant congregation if you do remove me i continued resolutely without first granting what i ask i will publicly proclaim before you can get me out at the door of the church a certain fact which you would give the best jewel on that statue up there to keep concealed will you let me see the abbess or will you not my naturally limpid and benevolent eye must have flashed lightnings of wrath as i spoke my usually calm and mellow voice must have sounded like a clarion of defiance for the priest suddenly changed his tactics he signed to the soldier to let me go the englishman is mad and must be managed by persuasion not force said the wily churchman to the congregation he is not mad he is only a genius exclaimed my gigantic and generous marchionissa taking my part leave him to me and hold your peace all of you said the priest taking my arm and leading me quickly out of the crowd he showed me into a little room behind the body of the church shut the door carefully and turning quickly and fierce me on me said now you fanatic of an englishman what do you want bigot of an italian i answered in rage i want to prove your miracle man there to be a thief and impostor i know him he was no more blind when he came to florence than i am the, the priest turned ghastly with rage and opened his mouth to speak again when by a second door at the other end of the room in came the abbess herself she tried at first the same plan as the priest i never saw a fiercer leaner sharper old woman in my life but bullying me would not do i knew i was right and stuck manfully to my point after stating the whole of the great polycarp robbery case i wound up brilliantly by announcing my intention of sending to rome for witnesses who could prove the identity of my thief of a model and their sham of a miracle man beyond the possibility of refutation this threat conquered the abbess got frightened in real earnest and came to terms or in other words began to humbug me on the spot in the course of my life i have known a great many wily old women the tart seller at school was a wily old woman a maternal aunt of mine who wheedled my father out of a special legacy was a wily old woman the laundress i employed in london was a wily old woman the marchioness i now lodge with is a wily old woman but the abbess was wilier than all four put together she flattered and cringed lamented and shed tears prayed for me and to me all in a breath even the magnificent depths of humbug displayed by polycarp the second looked shallow and transparent by contrast with the unfathomable profundities of artifice exhibited by the lady abbess of course the petitions that the abbess now poured on me in torrents were all directed towards the one object of getting me to hold my tongue forever on the subject of signor polycarp's assumed blindness of course her defense of the miracle exhibition going on in her church was that she and the whole nunnery officiating priests included had been imposed on by the vagabond stranger who had come to them from rome whether this was true or not i really cannot say i had a faint consciousness all the time that abbas was speaking that she was making a fool of me and yet for the life of me i could not help believing some of the things she said I could not refrain from helplessly granting her all that she asked 
in return for this docility on my part she gratefully promised that polycarp should be ignominiously turned out of the church without receiving a single farthing of the sums collected for him which happened to be still remaining in the convent cash-box thus avenged on my pickpocket model i felt perfectly satisfied and politely assured the abbess who undertook to account satisfactorily to the public for the disappearance of the miracle man that whatever her story was i would not contradict it this done the pious old lady gave me her blessing the priest followed on the same side and i left them writing down my name to be prayed for among the convent list of personages of high rank who were all benefited by the abbess's interest with heaven rather different this from being removed as a heretic in the custody of a soldier second a quiet day at home after yesterday's excitement the behavior of the marchionessa begins to give me serious uneasiness gracious powers does she mean to fall in love with me it seems awfully like it on returning to the palace yesterday she actually embraced me i was half suffocated by her congratulatory hug the hug over she playfully pinned me into a corner till she made me tell her the whole of my adventure in the church and worse than all not half an hour since she coolly desired me to pull the foot-warming pipkin from under her robes i was right about her having one there to poke the embers and then to put it back again speaking just as composedly as if she were only asking me to help her on with her shawl this looks very bad what had i better do run away aside so in a time when the sight of an ankle was considered titillating and scandalous to reach under a woman's robes is basically to have relations with her so uh, symbolically speaking this is indeed very bad third another adventure a fearful life-and-death adventure this time this evening somebody gave the marchionessa a box at the opera she took me with her confound the woman she will take me with her everywhere being a beautiful moonlight night we walked home as we were crossing the piazza i became aware that a man was following us and proposed to the marchionessa that we should mend our pace never exclaimed the redoubtable woman none of my family have ever known what fear was a worthy daughter of the house and i don't know courage signor potts and keep with and keep step with me this was all very well but my house was the house of potts and every member had at one time or another known fear quite intimately my position was dreadful the resolute marchionessa kept tight hold of my arm and positively slackened her pace rather than otherwise the man still followed us always at the same distance evidently bent on robbery or assassination or perhaps both i would gladly have given the marchioness of five pounds to forget her family dignity and run on looking over my shoulder for about the five hundredth time just as we entered the back street where the palace stood i missed the mysterious stranger to my infinite relief the next moment to my unutterable horror i beheld him before us evidently waiting to intercept our progress we came up with him in the moonshine death and destruction polycarp the second again i know you growled the ruffian grinding his teeth at me you got me turned out of the church body of bacchus i'll be revenged on you for that he thrust his hand into his waistcoat before i could utter even the faintest cry for help the heroic marchionessa had caught him fast by the beard and wrist and had pinned him helpless against the wall 
Pass on, Signor Potts, said this lioness of a woman, quite complacently. Pass on, there's plenty of room now. Just as I passed on, I heard the sound of a kick behind me, and turning round, saw Polycarp the second prostrate in the kennel. La 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 la, sang the Marchionisa from Suani la Tromba, which we had just heard at the opera. Aside, I have never heard Suani la Tromba, and so my la la's probably did not fit the melody, and I apologize for that. As she took my arm once more and led me safely up the palace stairs. La 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 la. We'll have a salad for supper tonight, Signor Potts. Majestic Roman matron-minded woman. She could kick an assassin and talk of a salad both at the same moment. Fourth, a very bad night's rest. Dreams of gleaming stilettos and midnight assassination. The fact is, my life is no longer safe in Florence. I can't take the Marchionisa about with me everywhere as a bodyguard. She is a great deal too affectionate already. And yet, without my Amazonian protectress, what potent interposition is to preserve my life from the bloodthirsty Polycarp when he next attempts it? I begin to be afraid that I am not quite so brave a man as I have been accustomed to think myself. Why have I not the courage Marchionisa and her mother warning and so leave Florence? Oh, Lord, here comes the tall woman to sit for the civil picture. She will embrace me again. I know she will. She's got into the habit of doing it. She takes an unfair advantage of her size and strength. Why can't she practice fair play and embrace a man of her own weight and inches? Fifth. Another mess. I shall be dead soon, killed by getting into perpetual scrapes, if I am not killed by a stiletto. I've been stabbing an innocent man now, and have had to pay something like th three pounds of compensation money. This was how the thing happened. Yesterday I got away from the Marchionisa. She hugged me, just as I foretold she would, about dusk, and immediately went and bought a sword stick as a defense against Polycarp. I don't mind confessing that I was afraid to return to the palace at night without a weapon of some sort. They never shut the courtyard door till everybody is ready to go to bed. The great staircase is perfectly dark all the way up, and affords some capital positions for assassination on every landing place. Knowing this, I drew my new sword, a murderous-looking steel skewer, about three feet long, out of the stick as I advanced toward home, and began on Polycarp in the darkness the moment I first mounted the stair. Up I went, stabbing every inch of my way before me in the most scientific and complete manner, spitting invisible assassins like larks for supper. I was just exploring the corners of the second landing place on this peculiar defensive system of my own, when my sword point encountered a soft substance and my ears were instantly greeted by a yell of human agony. In the fright of the moment I echoed the yell and fell down flat on my back. The Marchionisa rushed out on the stairs at the noise, with a lamp in her hand. I sat up and looked round in desperation. There was the miserable old porter of the palace, bleeding and blubbering in a corner, and there was my deadly skewer of a sword stuck in a piece of tough Italian beef by his side. The meat must have attracted the skewer like a magnet, and it saved the porter's life. He was not much hurt. The beef, stolen property with which he was escaping to his lodge when my avenging sword point met him, acted like a shield, and was much the worse wounded of the two. The Marchionisa found this out directly and began to upbraid the porter for thieving. The porter upbraided me for stabbing, and I, having nobody else to upbraid, upbraided destiny for leading me into a fresh scrape. The uproar was made something quite indescribable. We three outscreamed all Billingsgate Market in the olden time. 
at last i calmed the storm by giving the porter every farthing i had about me and asking the marchionessa to accept the sword of my sword stick as a new spit to adorn the kitchen department of the palace she called me an angel and hugged me furiously on the spot if this hugging is not stopped by to-morrow i shall put myself under the protection of the british ambassador i will or my name isn't potts sixth no protection is henceforth available no british ambassador can now defend my rights no threats of assassination from polycarp the second can terrify me more all my other calamities are now merged into one enormous misfortune that will last for the rest of my life the marchionessa has declared her intention of marrying me it was done at supper last night after i had pinked the porter we sat round the inevitable invariable salad on which we were condemned to graze the nebuchadnezzars of modern life in this accursed gazebo of a palace my stomach began to ache beforehand as i saw the marchionessa pouring in the vinegar and heard her at the same time dropping certain hints in my direction frightfully broad hints with which she has terrified and bewildered me for the last three or four days i sat silent in england i should have rushed to the window and screamed for the police but i was in florence defenceless and a stranger before an amazon who was fast ogling me into terrified submission to my fate she soon got beyond even the ogling when we were all three helped to salad just at the pause before eating the marchionessa looked round at her fleshless yellow old parent mother says she shall i have him beloved angel was the answer you are of age i leave your choice to yourself pick where you like very well then pursued the amazonian daughter very well potts here is my hand she held out her mighty fist toward me with a diabolical grin i felt i must either take it or have my head broken i now sincerely wish i had preferred the latter alternative but an unlucky emotion of terror misled me into accepting the former i received an amorous squeeze that made the bones of my fingers crack again you are a little man and not noble observed the marchionessa critically looking me over as if i had been a piece of meat that she was purchasing in the market but you get both size and rank in getting me let us therefore be perfectly happy and proceed with our salad i beg your pardon said i faintly shivering all over in a sort of cold horror i beg your pardon but really come come interrupted the marchionessa crushing my hand with another squeeze too much diffidence is a fault you have genius and wealth to offer in exchange for all i confer on you you have you modest little cherub of a man as for the day my venerated mother she continued turning toward the old woman shall we say this day week certainly this day week said mamma looking yellower than ever as she mopped up all the oil and vinegar in her plate with a large spoon the next minute i received the old woman's blessing i was ordered to kiss the marchioness's hand i was wished good night and then found myself alone with three empty salad plates left for execution that very day week left without the slightest chance of a reprieve i write these lines at the dead of night myself more dead than alive i am in my bedroom the door is locked and barricaded against the possible entrance of the marchionessa and her mamma i am co covered from head to foot with a cold perspiration but am nevertheless firm in my resolution to run away to-morrow i must leave all my luggage behind me and resort to stratagem or i shall not get off to-morrow the moment the palace gate is opened i shall take to my heels carrying with me nothing but my purse my passport and my nightcap 
hush a stealthy breathing sounds outside the door an eye is at the keyhole it is the old woman watching me hark a footstep in the street outside polycarp the second with his stiletto lying in wait before the house i shall be followed i know i shall however cunningly and secretly i get away to-morrow marriage and murder murder and marriage will alternately threaten me for the remainder of my life art farewell henceforth the rest of my existence is dedicated to perpetual flight note by the editor of the foregoing fragments with the ominous word flight the journal of mr potts abruptly ends i became possessed of the manuscript in this manner the other day while i was quietly sitting in my study in london the door of the room was flung violently open and the ill-fated potts himself rushed in his his eyes glaring his hair dishevelled print that cried my gifted but unhappy friend enlist for me the sympathies procure for me the protection of the british public the marchionesa is after me she has followed me to england she is at the bottom of the street farewell farewell forever who is the marchionesa where are you going to i exclaimed aghast to scotland to hide myself in the inaccessible caverns of the most desolate island i can find among the hebrides cried potts dashing out of the room like a madman i ran to my window with which opens on the street just in time to see my friend fly past at the top of his speed the next passenger proceeding in the same direction was a woman of gigantic stature striding over the pavement in a manner awful to behold could that be the marchionesa for my friend's sake i devoutly hope not and so that story clearly draws on uh, sentimental and gothic traditions and i think is a real precursor to his later work in uh, the genre of the sensation novel which he didn't really get around to creating until the 1860s so eight years after this um, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join me again next time for our discussion of the newspaper novel, and after that, drumroll please, our next full episode will be The Life of Mary Elizabeth Braddon, the Queen of Sensation Fiction. After the ball, done by Mr. George <laughs> If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to the Victorian Scribblers Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. That's www.patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. There you can find all the latest updates about the podcast, most recent episodes, exclusive content, and links to all of the social media pages. You can also drop me a line at Victorian Scribblers at Outlook.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Bye.
Music for this podcast courtesy of MuseOpen, www.museopen.org.